This is Jason Fisher with Centric Biz and Tech Talks. Today I'm talking to Chris Urian and Sean Wallace about our topic, Deep Work. In this discussion, we'll talk about what Deep Work is and how to take advantage of it in business and why a lack of Deep Work time may be costing you more than you think. Hi everybody, welcome to the Centric Podcast. My name is Jason Fisher, I'm going to be your host today. My name is Sean Wallace, I'm an architect with Centric Consulting. I'm Chris Urian, I'm a Scrum Master and Agile Coach with Centric. Today we're going to be talking about the topic of deep work, something that's got us pretty excited here at Centric. It's actually changed some of the way we're doing our work. And I've got Sean and Chris here to talk a little bit about that. Sean, would you tell us what deep work means? You go back and you look at all the projects that you've worked on. The software projects is what, what I work on most of the time. Building software takes what it takes. You can't make it take less time than it takes. You, you can make it take more. We call that inefficiency, right? There's a, there's a fellow named Cal Newport. Um, He's a computer scientist at a university. He wrote a book called Deep Work. And the whole concept around deep work is really this idea that, that us as information technologists or information workers, software developers, content creators, what we do best is to, is, is to do cognitively demanding tasks. And that's what deep work is. Deep work is the ability to do cognitively demanding tasks and, and do them at a high level over a long period of time. Um, so he would assert that, that we've created an environment that makes it really tough for us to do deep work. And deep work gets in the way of our teams and ourselves of being super efficient and very good at creating the things that we create. When you say we've created that environment, is that how we do our work or is that things happening outside of the way we do our work? Well, it's, it's a lot of things, right? Um, I, I can throw a couple of uh, uh, stats at you and see if that, if, if that kind of helps you out. If you ask the question, um, let's look at it this way. Um, how, many, how many times do you check email a day? Have you ever counted that? I haven't, no. Yeah. So the, the average user, and it's been studied, it's been looked at, checks email about 75 times a day, right? So they stop doing what they do, and they read email 75 times a day. Even if it's look at the ticker at the bottom of the screen, or it gets a beep and you flip over to you know, your email reader of choice, right? Um, so those are things that take away your productivity. Um, there's another stat around email and electronic communication um, 2012, Kinsey did a study that found that the average knowledge worker spends 60% of a work week engaged in electronic communication and internet searching. 30% of that time, 30% uh, of a worker's time is, is dedicated to reading and answering email by itself, right? So those are times, if that's not your job, if you're a developer or if, if you're a, you know, an analyst, if you're, if you are a, you know, a, a an IT professional or knowledge worker, reading email is probably not what you're best at. That's not the cognitively demanding tasks that we're talking about. The cognitively demanding tasks is doing your software development, doing your testing, writing your features, uh, gathering requirements, you know, organizing and supporting your team. So we take out of the box, off the top, we take 30% of that off and just do that and spend that time reading email. Isn't this really like the multitasking thing that we all put on our resume 10 years ago? Is because everyone wanted to see that you were a multitasker and you could take care of multiple things at a time. Yeah. I was I, I give a talk that's related to this and I always ask people and it's I've stopped asking it because it's kind of embarrassing as I say, who here is good at multitasking? And a lot of people are raise their hands and I'll and I'll say they're not. So multitasking is really just switching one thing for doing something else and you do it very often and we call it multitasking. Uh, in computer science we call the kind of the, 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 the thing that happens in between a task, we call that a context switch. We change from one task to another task and, um, and what it causes us to do is to take the things in our brain 
for working on that one task, the things that we prepared to work on, we set it aside, we grab the things in, in from our storage, from our brain, bring it into our kind of our working area and we work on the next task. That takes time. Uh, it takes energy, produces inefficiency or creates inefficiency. Studies are now showing that it, that it affects you, affects your stress levels. Uh, certainly it affects your ability to, to get work done because you switch between things and then the amount of efficiency that you have increases mistakes. It's Sean, and I see this when I work with teams, right? We, we do that, right? We all have our scrum boards, we move cards, we put too many things in process, right? So the teams that I work with, we always have a, a big, huge thing on the top of our board right before we move something to work on it. It says stop starting, start finishing, right? Uh, not something I came up with, um, but a concept that the team kind of looks at before I say, okay, hey, you know, if I'm trying to limit my work in progress, right, how do I do that, right? I think first, say, let me finish this first and then move on to the next thing. So they don't, aren't context switching, you know, uh, over and over again. So, um, so on top of that, so let's look at context switches just a little bit more. Um, how many times a day do you context switch, do you think? If you had to guess. Based on what you're saying, probably 100, yeah. 200, 100? Uncontrollably. Uncontrollably, right, right. I the average the average knowledge worker is interrupted. I don't know if it results in the context switch, but it certainly takes you out of your kind of optimal uh, working environment more than 400 times a day. Whether you have a beep, somebody walks by, you, you know, you check email, you switch between tasks. Um, and it's... And, and it's, it's, it, studies are trying to show that it's damaging to us, right? But let's look at, it at another set. So there's, there's kind of two things that are going on. So we've got this notion that we want to do you know, deep work, right? We want to do cognitively demanding tasks. We think it's a competitive advantage for us to be able to do those things. We like, and we like to do it. That's what we like to do. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that keep us from getting in, working efficiently, from working in a highly productive manner. Um, and it's, it's bad for us, but it's also bad for our companies, right? Um, if we're inefficient, it means it takes longer, we create more mistakes, it costs more money to, to do the same tasks. Um, and every, an, interesting, uh, an interesting notion that I read about in the 90s was this, this concept of, of the zone, um, where you can, if you're you know, a, a person that has to concentrate for work, that has to do deep work, that... that you can you spend a little bit of time in preparation and get going. You get into this work zone, and that work zone can be maintained. It's a highly productive time that can be sustained for multiple hours. The problem is, is that one interruption can just make it go away, make it stop. The reality is, is that you only have you can only do this once or twice a day, right? Operate in this zone. That just doesn't it just doesn't happen otherwise. Otherwise, you're in this inefficient context switching mode. On average, it's been measured. They used to think it was about 20 minutes. They've measured it over the last 20 years. And on average, it takes 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get into that maximum productive state. And if we're interrupted 400 times a day in some way or another, um, then um, you know, we have a situation where we're sometimes never able to get in that, in that optimal zone, right? So we're not creating, we're not being as efficient as we can ever in our careers or do we have you know new college grads that have grown up in this super distracted society or you know high school kids um, or you know younger folks that have never been in a situation where they can operate efficiently are they achieving what they can are they doing what they can in school are they doing what they can personally or are they doing what they can for their work or for their for their um, uh, for their clients um, you know we can power through it but the reality is, is that you know, we go home at night and we're tired. And we're not tired because we dig ditches, we're tired.
because our brains have been context switching all day and it's using more energy than we need to. So we're inconvenienced, <clears throat> maybe not being as effective as we could be, but at the end of the day, is that really what we're talking about? It's a slight inconvenience, maybe a little less work than you could have possibly gotten done, or is there something bigger going on? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing, one thing's personal and one thing is for your business. The personal thing is, is that if you live in this distracted state, there's now some evidence that is starting to show that all these distractions, all these things that are interrupting you and getting you out of this work zone can permanently reduce your ability to do this, this cognitively demanding work. That means, you know, it's like a muscle, you know, you, you use it or you lose it. And if you're not, if you can't operate in this optimal state or this deep work or in a, in a zone where you can do a lot of deep work, it can permanently damage your ability to do that. If you are a knowledge worker, a technology worker, you know, a, a developer is what I think about, uh, that scares me because that's what I do, right? And that's how where a lot of us do. On the business side, um, all these interruptions cost 28, again, studies have shown 28 billion hours a year of lost productivity to context switching and business distractions. It's not efficient for the business. You might need to be in this high speed uh, environment where you need to move quickly and be nimble, but we don't need to be interrupted. The net cost of those, by the way, of those 28 billion wasted hours is a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars of lost productivity in the U.S. economy. Now think, how do we measure the ability of workers to participate in the economy? We look at a productivity number, right? So we have a, we have a trillion dollars in a, you know, a, a teens in, in an economy that's the size of you know, 15 or 20 trillion dollars, something like that, just, you know, just, just being lost, just gone in efficiency and productivity. So you called this when you did your talks about it, and I think you borrowed it from Cal Newport, but this is the superpower of the 21st century. So, so if, so the ability to, so Cal makes the, the, the assertion, and I agree with it, and I teach it to my children, and I try to teach it to a lot of developers as I can, that the ability to stay focused will be the superpower of the 21st century. If you are a person that can sit down, get up, um, um, block all the distractions of the world, Put yourself in an environment that you can work in an optimal fashion that you will produce more than other people that can't, right? You will do better. You will have more opportunities. You'll have a better work product and become uh, better at what you do. All right, so if, if I feel like I'm one of those people who's kind of losing that ability because of the distractions and some probably medical issues that are undiagnosed, but I'm hoping there's some hope at the end of this. Like, what can we do to rectify some of these situations, not only personally, but maybe within our business or in our teams to make sure that we're, we're assisting people to work at a deeper level? I'm trying to, I really need to know where I spend my time. I might not have a problem. I might be working efficiently, right? So what I, first thing I want to do is I want to look at what I'm doing, where I'm spending my time, um, how much email am I reading? If email and electronic communications are a problem, how much of that are I reading? So the first thing is to measure how can we measure our time? I'm not a big fan of creating a bunch of work for somebody to measure something. So what I want to do is I want to have tools that can that can measure things that I want to measure and give me kind of personal telemetry just by observing how I work. So the data is generated by the way I do that I do my work. I use an application called Rescue Time. I use it on my uh, there's three devices that I use. I use my phone, my tablet, and my laptop, and I run Rescue Time on on all of those things. And what Rescue Time does is it looks at the work that I am doing, the tools that I'm using, and it tries to tell me 
whatnot gives me a productivity number based on how I rate those tools. So in other words, rates, communications, and scheduling lower with respect to productivity or for the uh, with respect to giving me a number of how productive I am as it does software development, right? Um, going on Facebook gives me a different number than going on Git or Stack Overflow, right? So it even goes down goes down to that level. And it works across all my devices. It aggregates the data together and it gives me a number, right? Um, so that tells me where I spend my time. So then what I can do is, and what I do is, I use that data that it, that it, that it gives me and in the, the weekly reports that I get to, um, to say, oh, you know what, you're right. I did spend a lot of time on you know, watching, you know, reading articles about Urban Meyer over the last few days <laughs> um, to date the podcast. He, you know, he, he uh, retired a couple of days ago. Um, and I lost some productivity due to that. But, you know, I get that. But also, I spent five hours the other day reading email. I can take a direct action on that. And, and, and then other thing I do to measure, you know, I measure, use rest your time to measure how I spend my time on my devices. Um, I also measure my communication channels. So I use tooling to look at my emails to say who I send emails to, who I receive emails from, how often and when, and how do I respond to them. I do that because I, I, um, I, I create some, some, some metrics about how I want to read email, when, for how often. So my goal is to read email, to answer an email within four business hours of when I get it. So if I get an email at 5.30 p.m., I want to read it by noon the next day and respond to it. And, um, and then I look to see how well I'm doing based on that. So if I have, an e if I have emails that are that are uh, my average response time is get creeping upwards of five, six, seven, eight hours. That tells me I need to dial back some other things and read email. But then again, if my average response time is two hours, I need I need to read less email. What that means is is that I'm waiting. I read email. I consume email um, purposefully later in, in the mid morning, after lunch, and before I go home. And that's when I read email. Um, and that and that allows me to not have to worry about you know beeps that are popping up. I don't even have a email alerts on on my computer, um, um, and then and allows me you know to not let that be an efficiency problem. It allows me to measure it. So taking control over that, being intentional about the way you consume things, and really knowing where you stand in the first place are important. Yeah, knowing where you stand, um, uh, measuring it, and then using the data that you collect to take control over that process. I like how you said that, take control over that process and affect your behavior, right? And by the way, people don't get angry when you don't answer emails within four hours, right? When you don't answer emails directly. They understand that, you know, if you explain it, hey, this is my communication policy, which is another point that we have. You know, I want to create a communication policy. I want people to know how I'm going to communicate and when and what my response time will be for the people that I work with most closely. Yeah, I mean, we change teams a lot as consultants, so it's obvious we usually have a setup of explaining that to the new team, helping them understand how we like to work. But I think we've all had that guy in the office where he walks over to your desk and says, did you get the email I just sent you? And literally he beats you the email to your desk. Yeah. It hasn't arrived yet. No. Give me 30 seconds at least to look at it. Yeah. There's some training that's going to have to happen, some communication on how we expect to do things. There's training and some trust, right? So right. so as we as we develop relationships, we talk about this. This is how you're going to – and we talk about this in our in, in our team meetings, right? This is our communication plan. This is how we're going to communicate together. And we pick asynchronous – we purposely pick asynchronous communication channels um, so that you can consume them 
uh, when you want to, but you can get the whole stream. You can get the whole library of the things that are going on. You know, and there are exceptions too, right? Um, there's sometimes you get a super important email that you need to read right now, right? Um, or maybe, you know, you there's a, a phone call that someone's going to call you in five minutes. You don't know it, but they send you an email, and then when you, you get the phone call, they say, hey, did you see my email? Well, it's because the email has a bunch of important stuff in it, maybe a long stream or a document that we're going to talk about. That's okay. We have to be flexible. We can't be... No dogmatic and angry, right? Uh, when when people violate our rules, sometimes they have good reasons uh, to do that. So I think that's really good at an individual level. What about at a team level? What are some of the things we've done to try to help our our knowledge workers get into more of that deep work and be able to be more productive? Yeah, yeah. So we, we from a team standpoint, right? We talked about this uh, the other day, um, going back to an article by Paul Graham back in two thousand and nine. This concept of a maker schedule and a manager schedule, right? When we talk about knowledge workers, we're talking about that maker schedule. We need that focus time. We need that 23 minutes and 15 seconds to kick into gear, right, to get focused, right? A manager schedule is set up to go from meeting to meeting, hour to hour. For us to work productively and not have context switching, we need our teams to be on that maker schedule, right? So some of the things we've done with the teams I worked with is based on Pinterest did this with their engineering department, right? Um, they have no meeting days, right? So... If we have a two-week sprint, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of each week of that sprint, it means no meetings. They set their rules in place, similar to what Sean was saying about contacting and communication plans. It says, hey, our team is not available, our folks are not available to attend meetings, right? Because you always get that meeting that's out there. And then they did some kind of surveys and, and some analysis around, hey, what people are you know, respecting those rules, what people aren't. And when they retro on that, they can kind of give that feedback. So uh, we've worked, a couple of my teams have kind of worked with that. We're gonna start with the team I'm working with right now to kind of say, hey, let's try this no meeting days. Um, and what happens is the team is, they thank you very much. They're like, okay, thanks for removing that, you know, and allowing us to focus. Um, and it's not something I've ever had a team say, can we stop having a no meetings day? You know, it hasn't happened yet. No, I tell you that. The people who are on the maker schedule and need to be on it are always thankful to have things yeah. blocked off. Correct. And somebody else to do the work and be the bad guy. Because they want to ask, but they don't want to look like the guy who's asking for no meetings. Correct. Right. Do we call those time locks, right? Where we where we want to, you know, we need to schedule the time to do work. And sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to schedule the time to go to lunch because someone will schedule a meeting over lunch mm -hmm. because you've got time locks them doing work during the day, right? So, you know, you've got to schedule those times to work. But I think it's also important if we're trying to, you know, we've got to be in the position to grow. Um, this is probably another podcast, but we've got, to, we've got to be able to learn, right? So as much as we schedule work, we also have to schedule time to learn, time to do research and R&D and, and, and block it off. It's a, sound, it's a sound practice. And frankly, it works very well for me. I have a, I have a hot button on my phone that I, if, I, if I start to do something and I know someone's going to interrupt me, I hit this button. And it blocks off the next hour automatically on, on all my calendars. And, and I use that a lot. Um, in fact, I showed it to my son and he uses it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Slack time is very important for the teams, right? Everyone thinks 100% utilization is the way we should work. But in order to get flow and start working, it's, it's impossible to be 100% utilized and actually be able to get focus and get flow and actually get work done. That Slack time is so valuable for teams uh, and for individuals. And I think that's something we have to establish as our rules. You can't be embarrassed about the fact that you're researching something that's maybe only tangentially related to your current project because those kind of things can help contribute to your project or help you see a better future for something else. And I think a lot of times we want to be perfectly utilized and so we're 
resistant to admit we're, we're learning at any particular time. So we should be working. If we're, if we're doing something, it should be a productive piece of work, not necessarily learning. Yeah, and it's about, if it's about continuous improvement, right, how do you do that without having a break to learn or slack time to learn? Right. right. I like the headphone rule we used here in the studio. Yeah. I think it's still pretty effective. Uh, just if, you, if somebody has headphones in, both headphones in, you don't interrupt them. You don't walk up, you don't talk to them. They're in the zone or try and get in the zone, send them an email, unless it's an emergency. Right, that's that's helping us, you know, address this context switch, address the interruptions. We 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 all have limited resources, right? And the the one that we have that's most limited, you only have so many. Uh, Scott Hanselman always says, "I only have so many keystrokes in my career," right? <laughs> so we have limited time. Um, we're allowed to be a little stingy with our time. Our clients will thank us for it, and good leaders will thank us for it, right? So we have to we have to address the context switch, and we have to understand that we need to be in a collaborative world. We need to be in a space where we can communicate, but we need to have a way to uh, we need to have a way to say, hey, hey, don't bother me right now. I'm busy, right? Um, and like you said, in the studio that we have here in our centric facility in Columbus, we have this notion of the headphone rule. The headphone rule is close office door. Don't bother me. Don't don't I am me. Don't anything. Till I take my headphones off. So the rule of the headphones is, number one, respect the headphones. Number one, A, don't abuse the headphones. <laughs> That's right. That's why two headphones is no, no distractions. One headphone is you can talk to me. I'm just listening to something for fun. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that one. All right, so we've covered a lot of good material here. Is there, is there other places that people can go if they want to follow up on this topic, learn a little bit more? There's four books that, that I've listed in kind of my reading list that I think are important. I revisit certain certain times all the time. Of course, there's Deep Work by Cal Newport. That's the, you know, in, in that book, he coined the term deep and, um, and, and established a lot of the practices and a lot of the things that, that we need to do. But then there's another book, it's Overload. Um, and it, it talks about how this information overload is bad for organization. In fact, 37 Signals guys have written a couple of books over the last couple of years um, that are worth taking a look at. Um, the last two are Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. It's a great book for computer science-minded or engineering-minded people because it talks to us kind of in our language. Um, and it's written by Andy Hunt from the Pragmatic Press. And then another one is Algorithms to Live By. Uh, you know, trying to make our lives more efficient. You know what? There are solutions to a lot of problems that are al algorithmic. Um, and a lot of them are, are there in that book and can, can kind of help us be more efficient. But that's kind of the goal, right? The kind of the goal is to, you know, no, I, I eat the same things for lunch because I don't want to make decisions. I use some of these algorithms, uh, some of these algorithms to help me make decisions in ways that people have already figured out the most optimal way that I would never come up with. That one sounds interesting because I would wear the same thing every day if my wife would let me. Yeah, she Steve Jobs did. I know. Well, you have to get to Steve Jobs level before it becomes acceptable to act like Steve Jobs. That's the problem. Maybe that's what made him that level. Maybe it is. <laughs> Anything else you want to cover before we sign off? No, thanks for, uh, appreciate the interest. It's something yeah. that we've been passionate about for, for a little while, the, this idea of having efficient teams. It's, it's, it's fun. It's makes creates for, for a fun working environment. Uh, we love to accomplish things and to do things and to make things. And, and we love to not be dead on our feet when we go home to be with our families at night. And I think that's a good point. You leave the day feeling more accomplished and less exhausted for no reason when you're able to actually get into that deep work mode and get something done. Yeah, and, and I'll leave you with one last funny thing that we talked about before, right? I downloaded the audiobook for Deep Work, right? And I tried to listen to it while I was actually doing work, which seems like the complete opposite of what we should be doing, right? I mean, he talks about shallow work in the book, and I'm like, I put my headphones in for maybe 30 seconds, and I'm like, and what, 
should I at least read the title of the book before I do this? <laughs> you know, so it's just kind of funny. Yeah, a little hypocritical. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, that's not deep work. Yeah, and I find myself in that trap all the time. Yeah. Right? Uh, all the time. You know, there are times when someone asks me to do something, and by the time I get to doing it, I've had to do four other things. Yeah. And we call that shaving yaks, right? And, and I've in interrupted Sean enough times when I say, okay, start your clock again. You have to start again to get to this 23 point, 23 minutes. So. Stop doing that. Later. I know. I know. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. We hope to get more of these out and to give you a little bit more education about what Centric is about and what we're interested in. So go ahead and like, subscribe, and listen to us wherever you find your podcast.